Uh, and the good thing about nonprofits is you don't need to kind of, you know, uh, attract, uh, you know, thousands of people. You just need a small team of maybe, you know, 20, 30, 40. Uh, so I think like, there are enough, you know, crazy people out there in India. So it's just about being able to tell that uh, uh, kind of, you know, story and narrative authentically. Um, yeah, and find your kind of, you know, tribe and people. Welcome to Curio Revelio a collection of conversations where we deep dive into the journeys of some unique individuals who have taken the road less traveled. We look at their motivations and key moments in their life that defined who they are today in the hope that their journey will inspire and guide others to explore their own curiosity and find their passion. Good education is still a privilege in India. Many of us have felt the need for change but never took any action. But Tarun Cherukuri did. An engineer by profession, Tarun took the leap by leaving a successful career track at HUL to drive social change through education. In this episode, we talk with Tarun about his journey, challenges, motivations and a very intriguing value-driven system. Hi Tarun, great to have you here. Thank you for taking out time for us. Thank you, Adil, for having me here. My pleasure. Yeah. So, Arun, I was going through your website, you know, uh, in this action, and one term actually caught my attention was the term do tank. Right? And usually you hear the term think tank, right? So it was quite intriguing to see that. What's the story behind that? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, you know, uh, you know, I didn't come up with it. So that's the, you know, short of it. So I was having dinner with uh, another entrepreneur, Sharad Jeevan, uh, from stir and uh, uh, he was obviously more experienced than i was i was taking advice on uh, how to apply for a particular foundation uh, and um, i was explaining our model and uh, you know he had this aha moment you know from what you're describing like you know the way to synthesize the way of what you do is like you know you're a do tank so that really stuck like you know i took permission like you know can i use it uh, in my subsequent conversations, so in my elevator pitches, or you know, just to literally describe what we do. Um, so essentially, uh, I, I think the, uh, I mean, on a serious note, the distinction from think tanks is that I think traditionally we've always had uh, uh, the sphere of ideas in public policy or you know how how a society needs to be governed, uh, being influenced by think tanks, right? So and that's the space think tanks occupy. They put in you know, new ideas. Uh, of how, you know, the intersection between society, capital, and the state, right? So broadly, you know, Samad, Sarkar, Bazaar, um, think tanks are doing the thinking for society. Um, uh, so my kind of conception was like, you know, uh, not, India right now is not short of great ideas or progressive ideas for that matter mm-hmm. on how we need to be governed or how we need to operate as a society. Um, I think we, we lack kind of execution excellence and, uh, or, you know, commitment to really operational excellence. And so that was kind of the fundamental insight saying that, uh, you know, idea is only as good as it's, you know, executed, uh, especially in matters of governance. Uh, And so can we actually, you know, build an organization which is very committed to execution uh, and kind of, you know, seeing the last mile through. Uh, So hence kind of the do tank. Uh, So uh, the philosophy is, you know, let's say, you know, let's just take the first policy we picked up as well, you know, 25% in, uh, in unaided schools uh, for disadvantaged children. So mm-hmm. great idea on paper to have mixed classrooms. It works in theory, like, you know, a lot of papers have been written that, you know, it benefits all sets of students. 
Uh, but we know that like in a fractured society like India, where you know, we have a civilizational history of caste, uh, deep inequalities, a patriarchal society, how do you make such a you know, progressive policy happen? Yeah. Uh, so that's really where you know, the, the two-tank philosophy comes in. So can we do what is required to actually make progressive uh, ideas and you know, policies happen? You have been able to make quite some impact. It would have caught my attention. And I was just thinking about it. A lot of us, we are among the privileged class, right? Uh, we have laptops, we have internet access, we have mobile phones, right? And we take education, especially school education, as a very simple thing. It's like taken for granted that, yes, everybody goes to school. The amount of impact that your one project is able to make, I think over one lakh kids, right? I think in the last few years, uh, that has been tremendous, right? And what was the biggest challenge you faced while trying to take the, you know, from the idea to the execution? The first challenge is what I've faced is uh, the common perception of uh, kind of our schooling and kind of our education system. Uh, so what a lot of us don't realize is that, you know, every child who actually goes to government school now uh, belongs to either socially or economically disadvantaged backgrounds. So, you know, gone were the times where, you know, government schools actually represented kind of, you know, society's uh, diversity and, uh, you know, they were really kind of, you know, microsites for, uh, you know, uh, building the next generation of citizenship. So unfortunately, we have now uh, almost half of India's children going to private schools and yeah. half kind of going to uh, public schools. And metros, like, you know, clearly more than 70, 80% of uh, kids go to private schools. So that's unfortunately uh, the current, uh, you know, demography of how our schooling system is, you know, very divided. Uh, the other thing uh, a lot of people don't uh, like feel at a statistical level is, you know, I asked this question, like, you know, imagine a citizen who's earning, you know, 10 to 12,000 a month, uh, you know, where do you think this, uh, you know, Indian citizen is on the income distribution, right? So I asked this of my friends who are in corporate, um, and, you know, by and large, everybody feels, oh, 10 to 12,000, so, you know, that must be, uh, you know, somewhere at the 30th or 40th percentile, right? So what is actually true is, like, you know, if you're earning 12,000 rupees a month, uh, you're at the 90th percentile of income distribution. Right? And if you're earning a lakh a month, you're at the 99th percentile. So a lot of us actually like don't internalize that income distribution in the sense that, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I'm guilty of this as well. I still think I'm middle class just because I work in nonprofit sector. Uh, but in spite of being a nonprofit sector, I am at the 99th percentile of income distribution. So that's, I think, you know, something, uh, you know, fundamentally uh, we have, you know, uh, wrong in terms of our mental models. In terms of just being in sync with our society, so we think that we're actually uh, uh, kind of um, one at a school system level that the opportunities are you know fairly equitably distributed, and it is not right. So one income is very skewed. So uh, actually, most of us are in the kind of you know really top end of the distribution, uh, and uh, and most uh, you know children aren't getting a fair shot at opportunity. Uh, so hence, when I thought about that a little bit deeply uh, through my grad school work, so I felt that you know it was important to solve this problem at the entry level itself. So can we change the life path or life trajectory of children yeah. by you know giving them access to better institutions very early? So one challenge was this: just trying to convince uh, you know set of um, uh, funders and you know set of contributors to join you because not everybody was on the same page that this problem needs to be solved. Uh, you know, everybody felt, why don't we improve government schools? Uh, I think that work also needs to happen. But, you know, can we also give 
you know, 50% of kids who don't have a choice to go to better institutions while we work on kind of, you know, reforming our public schools. Uh, so that's definitely continues to be a challenge. Uh, so I think a lot of people uh, argue against mixed classrooms uh, and, and think of, you know, improving government schools uh, as, um, uh, as an alternative solution. Uh, but in our mind, like, you know, both need to happen, right? You know, while we need, while we improve uh, the status of public schools, we also need to, uh, you know, provide access to public education. So in that sense, like, you know, private schools being opening their classrooms up to children from disadvantaged uh, backgrounds is the character of public education, right? So, um, so that's been, I guess, the primary challenge. Uh, the secondary challenge, of course, like with most, I guess, startups or nonprofits, apart from raising resources, uh, can being able to raise a good team as well. So, you know, how do you attract uh, you know, team members, uh, when you don't have much to offer by virtue of, say, either compensation uh, or, uh, you know, per se, uh, uh, you know, uh, authority. So, you know, if you're in the civil services, at least you have authority to make impact. Uh, or if you're in politics, you have authority to make impact. Uh, if you're in, say, corporate, at least you have kind of, you know, capital resources to make impact. So in nonprofit, you don't have either of those. Uh, and so that's... So how do, you, how do you convince people to join your mission? <laughs> So you have a story as well. So I think like, you know, people uh, do have, uh, you know, values that they feel strongly about. So in our case, like it's about social justice, right? So, so I, I'm sure like there are enough, uh, you know, people who care about social justice. Uh, and the good thing about nonprofits is you don't need to kind of, you know, uh, attract, uh, you know, thousands of people. You just need a small team of maybe, you know, 20, 30, 40. Uh, so I think like there are enough, you know, crazy people out there in India. So it's just about being able to tell that uh, uh, kind of you know, story and narrative authentically. Um, yeah, and find your kind of you know, tribe and people. So I think just looking at it from a critic point of view, right? Uh, obviously, my understanding and my conception of the problem also might not be clear, but is sending kids to school enough, right? Will that make a really big impact in their life or is this something else needed? Right? We know that is obviously a starting step. But do you yeah. need to add something else to that journey to make them really come out of a certain stage in life where they can, you know, self-sustaining and help others in their community? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And definitely there's a lot more that needs to happen. Uh, and I mean, this issue also needs to be uh, looked at holistically. Obviously, you know, social mobility, if you really break it down, uh, is, you know, access to, uh, you know, a lot of things, access to education, access to, you know, good health. Uh, access to, uh, you know, other uh, kind of forms of social protection so that, you know, by the time you're ready for, say, market opportunities, you've had all the kind of, you know, pre-market readiness, as it's called. So, you know, or human capital formation, uh, which is, you know, good access to good health, good education. Um, and just to share a quick anecdote here, um, there was a study done in the U.S. Uh, of children in kind of rich families and poor families, and they tracked both sets of children for the first thousand days, uh, just to see what is the uh, you know kind of uh, privileges children from uh, rich families carry. Uh, so by age three, which is roughly around the thousand day mark, uh, children there also start preschool, like in our case, Anganwadi system. So they, for the first three years, they measured the number of words that children were exposed to in both sets of families. So what uh, they found was that you know children from uh, rich families uh, were exposed to 30 million more words in just the first thousand days compared to children from uh, poor families. So it's called a 30 million you know word gap study. So 
so it's not yet been replicated in india but i'd venture out a guess that you know the disadvantage the, the disadvantage would be similar in terms of dimension so so imagine like by the time you entered anganwadi so we imagine anganwadi as a first system of education right so by the time a child is entering anganwadi from a say a poor background so he or she is already disadvantaged exactly. by the amount of uh, you know literature or the amount of uh, language exposure he or she has had so that's the kind of you know you could say learning disadvantage uh, a child from a uh, disadvantaged background sta uh, starting with this is not accounting for you know uh, by age 3 like you know one in three children even nation's capital are stunted right so add kind of you know that cognitive deficit and the learning deficit Uh, and then you know then deficits only keep accumulating so definitely i think just access to a good education institution is necessary but it's not the uh, you know completely sufficient condition so it needs to go in with uh, you know early childhood care to ensure that a child is set up for uh, you know full cognitive uh, health and physical health and uh, you know subsequently once these two happen uh, there's there's a lot of um, you know early childhood education support that needs to happen Uh, because typically children from disadvantaged backgrounds are first generation learners and they yeah. don't have the the home support that uh, you know we typically kind of you know take for granted we've always kind of you know grown in uh, printed environment so i'll give an anecdote there as well so um, we work with children in the age group of 3 to 6 uh, and uh, one of the foundational literacy objectives is to know that a print operates in life broadly from left to right in most languages like you know the way we learn that is we actually learn that uh, by observing so we grow up we see our parents you know reading books reading newspapers they're already always reading from left to right, left to right. and nobody ever taught that taught us that right but what we what we see is when we work with first generation learners you actually have to teach that objective intentionally because they have not grown up in print rich environments so you have to teach children that okay like you know print operates from left to right so you know when you open very basic uh, thing you never even think about it this is something someone needs to be told correct it's quite correct. fascinating yeah so that those, for example imagine this as a you know a scaffolding or a skyscraper and so some of the building blocks we actually acquire just by imitation or by copying our parents or you know copying our environment uh, which is not the case for children who are first generation learners so even those building blocks have to be laid out very explicitly and uh, a lot of us who become educators or teachers like this is very non intuitive because we learned it by intuitively and now we have to unpack it uh, in a non intuitive manner in a logical manner um, so that has been kind of one big kind of you know learning from me um, that um, you know a lot more like you said like you know there's not just enough to uh, you know ensure access into a good institution a lot of this uh, you know additional support system needs to be built as well uh for a child to really be uh you know fully successful and you know i was going through a few of your articles and interviews right you give a lot of credit uh, to teach for india uh, in your journey in your career right uh, how has that experience been and why why has it been such a pivotal experience in building uh, in the section for you right right Now, thanks thanks abel for that my journey actually in the development sector started with the teach for india fellowship so in that sense like you know uh, you know a lot of uh, uh, what i picked up early in the development sector was because of that formative experience so i had the opportunity to immerse in a classroom and a community for an entire period of 2 years um, and i think anybody who feels seriously committed to the social or development sector it's a really good starting point 
uh, I think that a lot of now, a lot of fellowships on, uh, you know, offer. Um, I think it's good to start uh, at the grassroots level, uh, kind of, you know, fundamentally immersing in the last mile role. That's what essentially Teach Frinder did to me. And um, I think one experience that comes to mind is, uh, you know, I came straight out of Unilever, uh, in the Sun Unilever, where, you know, I worked on factory projects. I was used to kind of, you know, sending products to the market, uh, you know, worked on a few crores of projects. I just came off a project in Kolkata where we worked on a 15 crore factory. I was, uh, I was on a project trying to build a 40 crore factory. So I felt really good about my engineering capabilities. So I walked into this school, which is dilapidated. And I said, Achha, toilet to se bana sakta I've built factories. So one toilet is nothing. I'll raise money from my friends. And, uh, you know, uh, toilet to kya hai, matlab, you know, it's a, you know, do lakh project hai types. Um, and uh, what I did, and long story short, like in the two years of my fellowship, I didn't manage to lay a brick uh, in my school <laughs> building. Uh, so that was really humbling. So I, then that's when I realized that, you know, there's a word called political economy. So there are reasons why things don't happen, why things stay the way they are. So, uh, you know, I ran into obviously a lot of trouble. I realized that, uh, you know, I was trying to just be technical uh, in terms of solving the problem, uh, looking at the problem just from an engineering lens. But I realized that, no, there was a social angle to it by, you know, uh, these set of children did not deserve a toilet, right? And um, there was a political angle to it, you know, why that status quo existed between the school management and the local ward councillor, yeah, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So, so all of that was the political economy. And like I said, you know, I failed miserably. And uh, that's when it, I was convinced that, you know, very well-intentioned public policies uh, do not see their fruition on the ground uh, because of this complex maze uh, of, you know, uh, political incentives of administrative incentives and social norms, etc. So I really wanted to study that more. And, you know, it was kind of Teach for India's foundational experience, which, you know, uh, gave me that hard reality check. Um, and uh, this was just one experience, but many other experiences, like, you know, it would just be reality check after reality check, uh, which would be very humbling. And then whatever grand ideas I had about societal change, I couldn't you know, make it happen in, in a small classroom of 30, 30 kids. So, so that's when I realized that I just don't understand, you know, how, how the world is oriented. So let me just first understand how it's oriented before I make any change to it. Yeah. And, you know, doing a more back into your uh, education part, right? Uh, most engineers, you know, uh, a lot of my listeners and even me, I'm an engineer, right? Once we get into the industry after education, it's difficult to get out of it, right? Uh, but you managed to do it. Uh, can you walk us through what happened? How did you realize or come to realize or get to experience that this is something you want to work on? Yeah, yeah. No, very good question. So I think like some of it was happenstance in the sense that, uh, you know, there were some accidents which happened uh, about a decade back, which kind of triggered the move. So uh, one was, of course, you know, personal loss of my, you know, maternal grandmother, whom I was very close to. So that made me think like, you know, is my life's legacy going to be about, you know, uh, making better jams, ketchups and ice cream. So that's a really narrow <laughs> uh, you know, legacy to, you know, to build given the amount of fight, uh, you know, she went through as a, you know, single widow to, to bring me up and, uh, and uh, the kind of land reforms she was committed to in kind of a very patriarchal village as a single widow. So like just understanding her life made me think that, look, you know, I think she would expect me to do a little bit more than just, you know, sell you know, jams, ketchups and ice creams or, you know, FMCG goods for the rest of my life. 
and yeah. uh, Leavers was a great place. I saw my career for the rest of my life in Leavers, but I felt like you know I wanted to uh, do something more directly socially impactful, like you know creating jobs and opportunities. And uh, you know wealth was definitely one route of impact, but I didn't see myself kind of you know fitting into that story uh, any longer. I think the second event which really kind of accentuated that was 2611. So Leavers had a very strong connection to you know, 2611 in the sense that my skip manager to Paul Polman, who was Unilever CEO, everybody was in Taj that night. Uh, so it was very personal that way. And a lot of my teammates were uh, in Tendulkar's restaurant in Kolaba as well. So where um, you know shootings did happen. Uh, so everybody luckily escaped that night. So you know a really uh, you know good fortune that you know everybody escaped unscathed at least from Leavers. Uh, of course, there were a lot of other casualties, um, but that forced a reflection within the organization. So one within, you know, what would have happened if the worst case were to come true? Uh, so at a strategic level, but at a more personal level, I remember uh, kind of our supply chain director uh, kind of talking about uh, his personal reflections. Uh, you know, one of the things that struck me at that point was, you know, while it felt good that, you know, maybe this company would have run uh, even if the top management, uh, you know, wasn't available. Uh, you know, part of me filled with pride. Oh, this is such a great institution that even you know entry-level managers could have run this institution. You know, such a, uh, should such a scenario happen. But the other part of me suddenly realized that oh, like you know, I might work my way to kind of the top of this hierarchy in the next two decades, and then I am also fairly dispensable. So some freak accident, like you know, might take my life off, and then like you know, the machine runs. So that was the moment I felt really hollow. So I'm like, okay, like, you know, why are I like next 20 years of, uh, you know, treadmill. So that, facing that question became like really difficult. So I was like, why are So I was really anxious and restless for a good point of time. I started volunteering and so it was a very slow process. These were the trigger events. But then after that, I kept searching. And luckily, like, you know, I, I one fine day, I read a newspaper advertisement about Teach for India. And so that's how it really happened. Um, so, so yeah, it was a broadly six month process where I went through kind of these reflections, anxiety and restlessness, which landed up with kind of me interviewing for Teach for India. Yeah. Awesome. That's, that's a great story. I think, uh, that must have been a tough period for you. Yeah, it was definitely, uh, uh I remember our office used to be close to Churchgate and I used to live in Badala. So like every day, like, you know, uh, till you get into office, like obviously you're, I was buzzing with ideas, thoughts, etc. Uh, and uh, so I would kind of walk down from either CST or Churchgate all the way to office. Uh, so the entire train ride, like, you know, everywhere you're looking for answers. Like, is there an image that will speak to me? Like, is there an answer, you know, around somewhere here? So every single day, like, you know, you just don't, uh, you can't just rest your mind. So it was that, uh, you know, period of, you know, terrible young person's anxiety. Uh, and of course, at that point of time, there was not much help with, say, mental health uh, or, you know, access to therapists uh, or coaches and mentors like that. So I had good mentors, but, you know, nobody particularly could address, you know, the questions I was going through. Everybody is like, look, you know, this is kind of, you know, youthful idealism, this happens, you know. Part of uh, life. You know, yeah, yeah, 99 people will, you know, kill to be in your role. Like, you know, you're a 23-year-old managing, you know, two brands, Kisan and Quality Balls. Uh, you know, your kind of India's rep in international forums for Hindustan Unilever. So everybody would obviously, you know, uh, ask me to count my blessings and see kind of the privilege I was carrying. Uh, but part of me still felt this hollow. Like I couldn't express that. Now I have better vocabulary, but I tried to express this to my managers, skip managers. Like, you know, they were 
um, they were kind, like they listened, but they didn't have, uh, you know, generative solutions apart from keeping me in levers. <laughs> so I had to do my own search and, you know, finally, yeah, I landed up at Teach for India. I think that's an interesting point to just take a shift on uh, actually implementing the ideas that you have, right? A lot of people are thinking that, you know, I have this great idea to start up, they start working on it. But when you actually start working on it, start doing your research, that's a very tough part. And I think I read in one of your interviews that you have developed a system of taking small actions every day to reach your larger goals, right? So what is that system? Can you share that with us? How do you take ideas to action in reality? So, I mean, like, uh, over a period of time, what I've realized is, uh, you know, the more and more your systems are, you know, intrinsic, uh, the more likely kind of you know you're you're going to achieve your goals, um, and uh, so I think it's been a process of self-awareness, like trying to clearly articulate, uh, you know, what are the values that I deeply value, right? So you know, no matter the circumstance, like these are the values that you know that I want to espouse, and like you know, if my life experience is about trying to practice these values and manifest these values, uh, so. So I've tried hard to kind of, you know, find the articulation for what values, you know, resonate the most with me. So I think at an individual level um, uh, and uh, at a, you know, team level, so excellence is a value I realized that, you know, it's fundamentally, uh, you know, something I deeply resonate with, like, you know, uh, and uh, uh, so um, it becomes easier once you know that, okay, these are the uh, values on uh, internally and externally, I think, you know, justice is one value. I care deeply about. So uh, that's kind of step number one in terms of any accountability system. So if uh, if uh, you're very clear about what values you want to espouse, so then you're driving all your actions towards those values. Uh, so that's, I think, step number one. Uh, like usually what I've seen is, uh, and mistake I've done as well, uh, like I've tried to have accountability systems outside me, like where I'm then trying to hold values which other people hold dear. So then that becomes very difficult. I'm trying to change my behavior in the mold of somebody else's values. Uh, so that's kind of taken a bit of learning to say that, look, you know, ultimately I need to be clear about, you know, what values I want to express in this world and be consistent with that. So once you've done that, then the second step is, you know, uh, can you have simple mechanisms uh, to actually see whether you're making progress? You know, you know, the motivation trick is like, you need to know that you're making progress on a, you know, uh, on a yearly basis, on a quarterly basis, on a monthly basis, on a daily basis. Um, so I think like, you know, yearly and quarterly systems are easy because, you know, when you run an organization, you know, you can set up goal systems, you can set up a board and uh, you have kind of, uh, you know, a funding ecosystem as well. Uh, you have your own uh, kind of, you know, community that you're serving. So all these are feedback systems. So, you know, th that on a longer time horizon, you always get feedback, whether, you're making the impact that, you know, are you being consistent with your values? Uh, but I think on a, the tougher part is, you know, daily, the shorter time horizons where, you know, you don't see impact immediately and how do you know that whether you've had a good day, right? So, so one of the ways I have kind of, you know, broken down, down for myself is, you know, I realized that, you know, on most, on an average day, I'm taking three to four really important decisions uh, in my kind of, you know, uh, working life. And, uh, so I kind of, you know, think of uh, those three, four decisions uh, as uh, kind of the test of, uh, you know, whether I'm being consistent with my values. 
so I kind of try and reflect at the end of the day, like, you know, look, you know, have I uh, been, you know, ethically sound? Have I been uh, kind of rigorous? And have I really truly lived up to the value of excellence on these three, four decisions? Uh, and I think like you played sport as well. And I kind of played badminton until I was 16 uh, for my state and then played badminton at university as well. Uh, so one way I try and kind of make this a uh, you know game for myself is you know I think of every day like a a day of a test match and so each of these decisions as you know one session in the day. So mm-hmm. I'm like like did I win the session or like, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, so did I do well in the session? And there's some days like you know where you know uh, you maybe do a three on three and you played out the day and you feel like okay this is like. Uh, you know, Lakshman and Dravid's partnership for the day. Uh, you know, you played out the day really well. There's some days like, you know, <laughs> you get knocked out. Like all three decisions you feel like, you know, you couldn't take or, you know, you just took really bad decisions um, or you were too reactive. So that's how kind of I uh, kind of hold myself accountable on a daily basis. Um, like I said, weekly, monthly, quarterly. Uh, I just have, once you run a team, like, you know, you actually like most of the, other time horizons, uh, you know, you feel accountable to other people and that naturally, you know, sets a, a set of actions into motion. Uh, but it's a daily thing where I feel like, you know, I took the longest time to, you know, crack this mental model for myself. Uh, so it's just me. Like, I don't need, say, even kind of, uh, you know, anybody else to remind me that, like, you know, this is kind of a pulse check I need to take on a daily basis. Uh, and ultimately, I have to sleep with a clean conscience that, like, you know, these are three decisions or four decisions that I have done my best, uh, you know, given all my resources. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, so the accountability system, right? That is one thing I found really interesting, and I think something I've been also struggling to build, right? A strong accountability system. And a lot of people in the workshop we do, right? Will we help them uh, identify what they're really curious about, right? How do they build it into a passion and work on it uh, full time, right? Uh, so that is also something people struggle with a lot. So how have you been able to build a accountability system? How does it work for you? Yeah, yeah. No, very, very, uh, I mean, important and uh, difficult questions in the sense that it's not easy. Like, you know, all of us are different personalities and, uh, you know, we'll have to kind of iterate and figure out what system kind of works for us. Uh, You know, for example, like, you know, autonomy might be a very strong, uh, you know, value for someone. So which means like, you don't want somebody else to hold you accountable, right? So... Uh, in, in that sense, like then for, for such a person or a personality, uh, then an accountability system, like you really have to dig deep and say, you know, what are the values that uh, you hold dear? Like being very clear about and not being confused about, you know, which value is more important to you. Uh, mm-hmm. Because in life, like, you know, there'll be decisions you have to make where one value will have to gain prominence or the other value, right? Yeah. Two values will be intention, and having that clarity is important. Uh, so for me, I think the best accountability system, first level is intrinsic, like I said. So being just very clear about your values and how you're measuring yourself against it. Um, so one great book I read in this regard is, you know, How Will You Measure Your Life by Clay Christensen. Uh, so that's really helped me. Like, you know, one of the things he does say is like, you know, if you hold a certain value really dear, it doesn't matter if you live that value 99.99% of the time, right? So your life will always be, you know, marked by the 0.01% of the time, you didn't live that value because you know that that value is very dear to you. Um, so that's really the accountability system, right? At an intrinsic level, we want to kind of, you know, uh, you know, sleep at the end of the day, knowing that the value that we hold is very dear to us. We actually lived 100% of the time up to that value. Um, 
I think the second level, I know we, we can't run our entire lives on intrinsic motivation. So we need extrinsic systems as well. So I think uh, there, I think, you know, uh, you know, having uh, a set of a community which can hold you together. Uh, and so people who share these values uh, and people whom you can, you know, confide in uh, and people who can, you know, hold that space for you is important, whether it's family, friends, or your team members or your board members. So I try and keep at least, uh, you know, uh, a group of, you know, 20 people whose, you know, feedback and opinion and, uh, uh, you know, critique I value. Uh, so I go back to them. I kind of, you know, uh, show my kind of case and evidence and all of that. And I kind of, you know, expect them to give unfiltered feedback. So that's kind of one, you know, system of accountability, which works really well. Uh, so ultimately saying, look, you know, in my values practice, like these are 20 people, uh, you know, whose, uh, you know, critique and feedback means a lot to me. So everything else is probably noise. Like I don't mind if, you know, people troll me for my work, but these 20 people are kind of the people who are my value guardians, right? So that's a system I've tried to build. Uh, you know, it's a diverse system of not just board members or not just funders or not just team members, but a really diverse mix of, you know, family, friends, board members, teammates, um, and community members as well. Yeah. I think that's a very strong term you used, value guardians. Right. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. I, I just have to ask, right, this is just out of the blue, right? As an engineer, do you think an accountability system can be built on tech? Completely yeah, on tech. Um, <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> Uh, so the yes part is, I think, like, you know, uh, like I said, the journey from extrinsic to intrinsic is common for all of us, right? So let's say, uh, you know, I want to meditate uh, uh, kind of every day. So I, previously, I used to think like, yeah, it's a deeply personal goal and I don't need any extrinsic systems. But what I've realized is, uh, you know, in the last couple of months, I have a small WhatsApp group of five of us who all meditate. And just like weekly, we share like, you know, what have been our insights from the last week of meditation. So just that small mm -hmm. act of, you know, having to share with your close friends, whether you've done it or not done it, and what have been your challenges, etc., uh, has changed the amount of hours I'm putting in. Because uh, like the motivation, like, okay, mujhe karna hai, isle kar uh, but, you know, that small, uh, you know, WhatsApp community uh, or, you know, tech group, you could say at an abstract level, Kind of changed uh, my accountability system. Uh, so tech definitely helps. I think you know it. It makes it easy to build kind of you know communities of people who share the same values. So you can find those people more easily you know via tech. And once you find them, you can communicate with them, stay in touch with them, you know, exchange you know confidential information as well. So especially you know uh, I think uh, you know tech when kind of you know designed really well for privacy. There are a lot of things like you know, we wouldn't have imagined ourselves saying, say maybe, uh, you know, uh, at least myself a decade ago. So I feel a lot more safe in saying with my group of confidants, right? So whether it's even with my therapist or with my group of friends whom, uh, you know, I feel like, you know, I want to share some, you know, vulnerable information. Yeah. Uh, so I think that can solve a lot of those problems uh, in, a, in, in kind of generative ways. Uh, but after that, like obviously nothing beats in person. Uh, but I do think like, you know, all of us need some extrinsic push as well, no matter how intrinsically motivated all of us are. Yeah. True. true. Right. Okay. I think the last section uh, that I want to cover is that, you know, a lot of people we talk to who are trying to build something they're passionate about, right. Uh, and they're currently working in a full-time job is the question of, you know, 
fill my passion over it. The thing I'm working on pay me enough, right? And people are very hesitant to take that step of moving away from a comfortable, good-paying job to something which will not, at least in the short term. But you did that, right? So just wanted to know your experience. Uh, what helped you take that decision? And what would you advise others who are on the edge and waiting to take that decision? Yeah, uh, I, I think like, uh, you know, one thing I want to do acknowledge is it's a tough, uh, you know, uh, decision, you know, given that, uh, you know, our you know, parents grew up in a generation where there was a lot of scarcity and, you know, especially, you know, economic scarcity, right? And so it's, and, but our generation has seen a lot more financial freedom and hence we are, you know, trying to ask ourselves this question that, you know, what is the life of, you know, true freedom look like, right? you know, fine, we've solved some of the, you know, economic freedom questions. So what next, right? What are other freedoms that I can pursue? Um, so I think, uh, you know, all of us get to that point and then we try and answer, ask for ourselves, you know, what are the values I care about? What are things I'm passionate about? Can I bring all of them together and actually be financially sustainable as well and be financially free as well? So that's obviously a difficult question uh, to, uh, you know, crack for every individual. So the only thing I'll say is at least from my decade of journey that, you know, money is definitely going to work out, right? So when you can, uh, you know, figure out the other parts of the equation, uh, which is, you know, what is, uh, what are the values you truly care about? And, uh, you know, what are, or, you know, as an external manifestation, what are things that you're passionate about? Um, and what I've discovered is there are other forms of capital as well. So one is, yes, you know, financial capital, but, you know, uh, having a community of really good friends, long-term friends is social capital, right? So, uh, you know, having, you know, purpose and, you know, you know, something larger than yourself for the rest of your life is, is a degree of, you know, spiritual capital, right? So that keeps you going, uh, even the toughest of COVID years, etc. So I think that's been one big realization that, you know, it is important to baseline, you know, economic freedom and financial capital. But uh, there are other forms of capital we can accrue uh, in our life as well. So living a life where we can, where you can accrue all forms of capital uh, is, is one thing kind of, you know, I'd offer to people like who are just on the margin saying, okay, if I leave this job, I won't have enough financial capital. Um, so you might have to trade off some of that financial capital for just other forms of capital. So I think life is a good, uh, you know, portfolio of having all forms of capital. So just indexing on one of the capital might come at the cost of other capitals. So that's how I've kind of, you know, looked at uh, at least my equation. So I try and say like, you know, do I have a good balance of all forms of capital? Uh, yeah. That's a brilliant way to put it. And uh, I think with that, thank you so much for taking out time and uh, sharing all the journey and your experiences with us. Really thoughtful questions. And yeah, I wish uh, all your listeners uh, success and, you know, good luck. In, in the journey of trying to express their values and you know, search uh, for a full expression of their values. Uh, so yeah, people can reach out to me if, uh, you know, if they're interested to know more about this action or about our work. Yeah. Um, so where, they, where can they reach out to you and can they learn more about this action? Sure. So um, our website is indisaction.org, www.indisaction.org. And I'm available on Tarun at indisaction.org. Uh, and I'm there on, you know, Twitter as well. So either of these uh, kind of, you know, platforms work. Yeah, just ping me and I'm happy to connect. Tarun is among the few folks I know who are helping others while doing what they love. Now that is the perfect recipe for a fulfilling life. Let us know who we should invite next on the show or just share your feedback 
at curiorevelio at gmail.com. See you on the next episode of the Curio Revelio podcast. <laughs>